Hey everyone, welcome to this episode with Philip Ball. Philip's a science writer, and throughout his career, he's contributed to a wide range of scientific magazines, including Nature and New Scientist. He's released a number of his own books as well, on topics from different kinds of minds, which is the most recent book, to a biography of water, to one also on how to grow a human. And if you check him out on YouTube, you'll see that for the Royal Institution, he delivered a few lectures, which have totaled a couple million of views. So Philip has a wide range of knowledge and he's a really fascinating character. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. And if you do, please hit subscribe because it really helps to grow the channel if you can do that. And yeah, thank you for watching. Phil, thanks for joining me. A pleasure. Thank you. So Phil, if we go back to your early life, I was wondering if you could maybe remember the first time you kind of felt really excited or fascinated by, by science. I guess I have been for as long as I can remember. I mean, I was one of those kids who could sort of do it. You know, I was I found I was good at maths. And if that was the case, and we're talking about the late 60s here, then you'd kind of be pushed in that direction anyway. At that time, there were there were virtually no that popular science didn't exist as a genre. So you know there were very few books you could get as a child to find out about science. But I do remember some that I found. There was one back then. I'm pretty sure about black holes. You know, all kids love black holes. But even back then, God knows who who wrote it. But there was also. Um, Martin Gardner's books. Martin Gardner, you know, wrote a lot about maths, but also about science more generally. And I remember one of his books. I think it was the one called *The Ambidextrous Universe*, which was about left and right and where the asymmetry of left and right comes from. So this was probably in the early seventies. And you know, I so I love stuff like that. But it, it was hard to find. Um, there were virtually no TV programs. There was kind of Tomorrow's World. I guess Horizon was sort of going uh, by that stage, but very little really. So if you did like science, you really had to sort of root about and you know and find it back then. Were you satisfied with what you were learning at school, or were you? like you say, kind of reading this extra stuff outside. I know it wasn't that accessible then, lots and lots of stuff, but yeah, how, how did you, how were you teaching yourself when you were younger? Uh, I, I was learning stuff outside. Um, my parents kind of picked up uh, at a fairly early stage that, you know, that was an interest I had. And so I remember I, I was either 10 or 11. They sent me on a course to learn computing. Um, and it was somewhere, I grew up on the Isle of Wight and it was somewhere around Windsor um, that, that they sent me. And I'm so glad that they did because I have, it meant I, I've had an experience of computing that, you know, f- seems even to me now like c- complete ancient history. These were in the days when computers filled the whole room. You were never actually, well, we, we were taken on a tour of the computer, but, you know, this was the amazing thing that we hardly ever saw. And uh, it was, we went up to learn programming. So there's me and a bunch of, I don't know, a dozen other kids. And uh, we called it programming then. It wasn't coding, it was programming. And um, it meant writing out in one of the very early programming languages, like Cecil or something, writing out your program down, you know, by hand on paper. And then we'd send it off to the technicians who'd turn it into punch cards. And then those cards, you'd get a stack of cards. And then the technicians would feed that into the computer overnight. And we'd come back the next morning to get the results printed out on the sheet and you'd see all the bugs in the program and you'd have to debug it. So it was, you know, amazing to have had that very early experience of what computing was like. 
Um, so things like that, you know, were possible. And uh, I, clearly that made an impact because I remember it all very, very clearly now. Uh, and I know that at a later stage when computers started to become more available and you have the BBC Micro and so on in the 80s, in the, well, in the, this would be in the late 70s. So I would stay on after school with a friend to, you know, figure out how to calculate pi to how many ever decimal places. It was that kind of thing. It was classic nerdy stuff that I do as a kid, as well as, you know, in chemistry, um, I would... I guess it was really I would just pilfer things from the school chemistry lab bring them home and do experiments at home to my mum and dad's consternation so yeah it was that that sort of classic thing that you know kids like me would do outside of lessons to you know further their interest was anyone in your family a, a scientist or a writer or a journalist not really no none of them I mean my grand my maternal grandfather uh, he worked as kind of as a an analytic chemist for the gas board in the Midlands. That's where my, my parents were from. Um, but he was, I barely knew him. He was very kind of reclusive. Uh, he was actually, his, his passion was, was nature photography and he took fantastic pictures of birds and fungi and, and so on. But I can't honestly say that was an influence because, you know, he, he died when I was still fairly young and I didn't really know him before then anyway. So no, they weren't. And uh, my eldest brother and I were really the first um, f uh, from our family, you know, our wider family to go to university. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, an academic family. Um, so yeah, I found, I sort of figured that I was very much finding my own way with it. Were there any particular scientists or writers that really inspired you when you were younger? Well, as I say, I mean, I'm, you know, I do remember Martin Gardner's stuff, but as I say, there, there wasn't, there didn't seem to be much beyond that. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, that's a, that's a hard one to answer because, yeah, for, for young people, you know, we didn't really sort of have much to go on or have much to come across. Um, so it was a, you know, it was a, a, a you had to sort of, conduct that exploration or certainly you know someone uh like me i you know just went to the local comprehensive school uh that didn't have a lot of resources so you had to sort of find your own way i think it's probably fairer to say that there were I, i've i've always been interested in writing um and you know i was more inspired by fiction writers generally um and I'd always done it. I mean, I you know was one of these kids that sort of wrote a novel at uh, you know age ten or something, and um, it had never occurred to me, and no one had ever suggested to me that actually you could combine these two things. I mean, this comes much later when I suddenly realised, hey, maybe I can do writing, which I've always done and always enjoyed, and do science and put them together. But that was never a, a career option. You know, that was never something I imagined. I'd always imagined, given this sort of interest that I had, that I would somehow, you know, have a career in science of some sort. What were some of those experiments you did at home? And, and what was that novel about when you were 10 years old? I'm intrigued. Look a little bit more <laughs> right. of these things. Um, <laughs> Well, the novel, okay, the novel was a complete ripoff, as they always are at that age, a complete ripoff of uh, the Moomin Troll books, the Moomin books. Um, those, you know, those, those were absolutely an, an influence on me in so many ways because I still feel, I mean, they're, you know, they're recognised as children's classics now, but in the sense that they 
had something I could always tell, I think, even from an early age, that there was something much deeper going on in Toby Jansen's work uh, that took it beyond what children's books, certainly at that stage, and I think any at any time, generally uh, talk about. The same was true, actually, of uh, the Earthsea series by Ursula Le Guin, that, you know, I, I read them and I just knew there was something deeper. There was something kind of adult here underneath what was going on. I did couldn't have articulated what it was, but I could tell. So those books really, you know, really excited me. Um, but uh, the experiments, um, I mean, they were, the, again, the, the, the classic ones. So, you know, I discovered at school that you can make an explosive um, and quite easily by uh, combining iodine and ammonia and you get nitrogen triiodide and it's a contact explosive. So you, 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 you make it, it sort of precipitates out. You mix the two things together and they were fairly readily available ingredients then. Mix them together and then you um, filter the, the, this stuff that precipitates out on filter paper and let it dry and it's a sort of brownie residue. And you just have to touch it with your hand or you know, your finger and it goes off with a bang and you know it's really a quite a, a significant bang and um you know iodine is produced and I, I remember you know at one point doing this and it was a bang that i really felt in my hand and you uh, had sort of iodine stains on my finger so all of that stuff uh you know i loved we we did try we were allowed my friends and i to um do experiments in the school lab you know at lunchtime we could just go up there and so you know being complete idiots you know at that age we we thought hey let's try and nitrate toluene and make tnt let's see if we can do that and so you know fortunately we didn't succeed in that it's actually harder to try to nitrate toluene to the degree that you can make tnt but we gave it a try um but there were also things like you know i i still remember um being able being allowed i guess at school to stick my finger into a bowl of mercury and, you know, that's something that these days you wouldn't be allowed to do because of the dangers of toxicity. But actually, you know, if you're careful about it, you know, it's not such a big deal as long as you're not sort of swigging the stuff back. And it's a real shame if I think if kids aren't, you know, able to have that experience now, because I still remember that so strongly as well, that the feeling of this liquid metal it's, you know, weirdly, weirdly dense. You put your finger in, it's a liquid. It doesn't wet. Your finger comes out dry because mercury doesn't wet it. And it is the most unearthly stuff. Um, and it, I think it was really those kinds of experiments that brought out the sensual aspect of chemistry in particular. It's such a sort of sensual uh, science. You have the smells, you have the colours, and you have the tactile sensations. And I think it was that as much as anything else that made me want to go on and study chemistry at university. Yeah, because I was going to ask, you went and did that at Oxford. Was it that those experiments then excited you and made you want to pursue that at university? It was partly that, and it was partly the usual thing uh, that I had inspiring chemistry teachers um, I mean, you know, all, all of my science teachers at, at, at school uh, were, were great. But in particular, I had three chemistry teachers at various stages and I remember them all. Um, so they were, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'll name them because, you know, you, we should name our teachers and remember them. So there's Colin McCarthy, there was Kit Heesman and there was Peter Walker. And they had very different styles, but somehow all three of them really sort of inspired me to want to know about chemistry. And so, uh, yeah, I, it, it, you know, I think it's 
so many people say this, um, it, not just in science, but you know, in whatever they've chosen to do, that it's the teachers that they had at that early stage that really determined their, you know, the path they took, and that was absolutely true for me. You then switched over to physics though when you did your PhD. Is that right at Bristol? You yes. Know, what inspired that that kind of switch? Well, I it was you know there are there's a there are many areas where physics and chemistry overlap, and it's not easy to say is this physics or is this chemistry. And the the course at um, Oxford still, in fact, is a four year course because you have what's called a part two. So you take the normal course and you take your exams, your finals. And then there's a year of research. It's like a sort of mini PhD. And that was by far the bit that I enjoyed most. And, you, you, you know, it's, it's independent learning. You have a supervisor. Um, my supervisor was, was Bob Thomas at, at Oxford. Um, and he uh, his work was uh, neutron scattering. So he would probe stuff, um, surfaces in particular, um, by firing beams of neutrons at them and seeing how they bounce off and by you know looking at what happens to the neutrons when they bounce off, how much energy they, they lose or gain, um, you can work out the stuff that they've interacted with. Um, and you know that is that's really at the borderline of physics and chemistry. It's really sort of chemical physics, I suppose some would say. Um, so I really enjoyed that. Then when I left Oxford, I uh, was always determined that I was going to I was going to be with my rock band for a couple of years. And that's what I did. So we just spent a couple of years as a rock band, you know, gigging around the country. And um, there came a time, as I always thought there would, as I was doing that. You know, it was an amazing time. It was great. It was all sorts of things. But uh, I always knew that if I wanted to pursue uh, science further, then there was going to be a limit on how long I could be a rock musician before I kind of, you know, lost it. So I contacted Bob at Oxford and uh, and said, look, you know, I think I'd like to do a PhD. You know, is there anyone you could recommend? And he said, uh, yeah, there's this guy, another Bob, Bob Evans at uh, Bristol, uh, who was also working, you know, in, in some sense on surface science. Um, but he was in the physics department and he was doing it much more from the sort of perspective of a physicist. And so he said, you know, give him a try. So I contacted Bob Evans and uh, went up for an interview, hitched up. I had absolutely no money as a you know, musician. We literally had no money. So I hitched up to Bristol uh, in a lorry and um, had the interview with Bob and, you know, we got on well. And that was that. So it meant that, yeah, I was now going to be in the physics department doing my PhD, which was a real challenge. I mean, for the first few months, really, I felt, I don't know if I can do this. There was so much learning to do because it's not just about the the PhD material that I had to learn. It's the whole sort of background physics that I really hadn't covered and other stuff as well, because as a uh, a, a postgrad, you, you you know, we had to know about sort of physics more generally. So I had to learn quantum mechanics in much more depth, and that was really really challenging. So it was tough switching from chemistry to physics, but I'm so glad that I did it because it's been so useful to have had exposure to you know both of those physical sciences. Yeah, that that sounds tough. I didn't know about this musical period you had. So so how how many how many years were you in the band after? After your undergrad, before the PhD, it was ba- it was basically two years. Two years, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and we were based in Southampton, and uh, it was 
it was again in the days when it was possible to do this when you know having no money but you know claiming uh, uh benefits you know you, you it was possible to find somewhere to live and to you know just have enough money to sort of feed ourselves more or less and there was you know nothing else i mean we barely even you know we didn't have money to go down to the pub like you're probably meant to as a rock band because we we, we, we couldn't um but uh, but you, we could do it you know that you could get by that way where you know whereas now i just don't think it would be feasible and i think that's you know such a loss because it means that anyone who wants to, to to make music they have to have some kind of independent means of supporting themselves to do that and it cuts it off for you know a whole wide swathe of society so uh so it was a, a it was a you know a, a fantastic time an amazing time and a, you know frustrating time and all kinds of things but i'm very glad i did it do you think during that period did you do you have real serious you know thoughts about making that your full-time career or did you kind of know it was a period that would come to an end you'd go back to science well it's that's my other life you see in another life I stayed doing that and I if you know if I had another life then it would be as a musician I mean I was never a brilliant musician but uh, you know uh, it's possible to <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I was never going to be a concert you know or classical musician but uh, you know I was good enough to 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 make my way in a band and I, to begin with, I just thought, you know, we'll see how it goes. Um, and it was, it, it's always very hard, of course, in music business to, to, to get anywhere. We, you know, there were signs of that. There was talk of a record deal. We recorded a session for Radio One and that was fantastic. Um, but it was never really clear, you know, what was going to happen. And as I say, I knew that, you know, after about two years or so my chances of getting back into academia if that's what I wanted to do were going to get progressively slimmer so yeah I kind of knew that at some point that that decision would would come up I suppose I think now um I believe the name of it is the music instinct you is that right you wrote a book yeah um, I guess it inspired that later on it, it I mean you know in a sense in, in the music is something I've always done and always been passionate about um, and the music instinct came about because I wanted to find a way of writing about music um, from the perspective of what I did and you know in a sense this was the obvious way it was it was a book about how our brains make sense of music and it's astonishing that they do because it's such a, a complex thing that you know you get this incredibly complex just it's just acoustic waves you know coming at us somehow our brain sorts that out into different instruments into you know structures and and uh, something that's coherent and that makes sense to us and something that excites us and excites the emotions how does it do that it's just sound you know what's going on to 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 create that so that's really what what uh, what that book was about and i i kind of it was also partly there was a bit of frustration i felt that every time you 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 tended to hear about the science of music it would be about things like um harmonics the harmonic series it'd be the mathematical aspects of acoustics really um and although that's all very interesting 
it didn't seem to me to be getting at the core of what it is about music that excites us, why we have this, you know, passion and have always had this passion culturally for, for music. Every culture that we know of on earth has music of a sort. So I really wanted to try to get beyond the sort of mathematical aspects of music or sound and to delve into the the cultural, the social, the historical, and the kind of you know genuinely musical, the sort of performance aspects of of it, all from the point of view of what it's doing cognitively. If you if you can in any kind of short and simplified form, come, you know, explain what what you found out during that research of you know why music affects us the way it is. What, what would you say? Well, it, I mean, it is complicated because there are so many things going on. But in a sense, I think that's the the key that. This complex signal that we receive has so many ways in to, uh, to you know, to our, to our brain that we pick up on rhythm, and there's something about that that seems, you know, intrinsically to excite. I mean, it excites the body. You know, we can't resist tapping our feet or moving our body to it, and that's the rhythmic aspect. Um, you've got the melodic aspect, um, so you know what the tune is doing really. How do we, you know, make sense of that? Tunes have particular sort of trajectories and dynamics that create a sort of an emotional journey. You have the harmonic aspects, so what the chords are doing, and that's really interesting because that takes us on a journey through. We we all have. I mean, I don't just mean musicians, although they have this more strongly, but everyone who enjoys music has a kind of mental map of harmonic space you know even if we have no music training at all of sort of how chords fit together um intuitively we literally have a map of that in our brain and as a piece of music unfolds the progression the the harmonic progression of where the chords are going it's like we're taking a journey through that space um and that's really what music is doing you know it's taking us on this journey in 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 many different dimensions at once these different aspects of music um, and what we're doing what it's really tapping into is the pattern seeking uh, instinct of our brain that's why I called it the music instinct because what we do have an instinct for is to seek patterns in nature and there's clearly an adaptive benefit a survival benefit in being able to do that because it helps us anticipate what's coming that's what's going on in music. We're constantly, you know, subconsciously, we don't know that we're doing it, but we're consciously sort of anticipating what's going to come next in music. And what music does and what composers and performers do instinctively is to play with that. I mean, literally to play with it and sometimes to just subvert it generally, just to give us something that's a little bit unexpected. And it seems that that's a big part of how it engages us emotionally, because this instinct to find patterns has a it, it, there's a, a kind of a, a it, it links into our reward system so when we make correct predictions about things we kind of feel a little bit you know happy with ourselves and if we if our expectations are thwarted there's a little bit of tension there and that's what music does it creates those tensions and then you know when when the payoff finally comes if it does we get that release and there's a literally a kind of a um, you know a neurotransmitter release that gives us pleasure from that so even for example something as simple as the way so many pieces so many classical pieces just slow down the so-called rallentando at the end of, uh, of uh, you know of the piece 
what that's doing. We know that final chord is coming. We kind of know what it's going to be. It's going to be the chord, you know, in a piece of tonal music. It's going to be the key chord. So we sort of know that it's coming, but the slowing down just creates a little bit of uncertainty about when. And so there's this slight tension and then finally it comes and we're happy and we get, a, you know, this, this enjoyment from it. So it's things like that that music is doing, that is, you know, it's playing with, with our expectations in so many ways to create that sense of anticipation and release. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, so kind of back to your story. So after the PhD, how did you, you know, come to decide you wanted to get into kind of public science communication? Was that an easy decision? It was, um, it was a slightly unexpected one. As I say, it, it, it was, it, it dawned on me with some surprise that actually, well, I, I guess the way it came about is that I um, found that I enjoyed writing up my thesis, my PhD thesis, which most people really don't enjoy. You know, for a lot of people, it's, it's, it's murder to get this thing done. But I enjoyed that process. And uh, so, I, and, and I kind of then figured, well, uh, that makes sense because I've always written and I've always enjoyed writing and you know I've always kind of written fiction and I never really connected it to to science but maybe writing is what I like doing so I thought well you know maybe there is a, a way into science publishing I didn't particularly think of writing as such but maybe sort of editorial work where you know you're working with words so I started looking around at the end of my PhD for what might be available and purely you know on spec i just wrote to nature the science journal um to basically i literally said you know <laughs> you've got a job any jobs going and out of sheer good fortune there was a, a hole had appeared in nature that i fitted in the sense that um the editor for phys one of the editors for physical sciences had just left to set up the uh, magazine chemistry uh, sorry physics world for the institute of physics um and uh, so they had to replace someone in that position. And I'd trained in physics and chemistry, so I had the right sorts of qualifications. And somehow or another, I persuaded the editor I was the right person for the job. And so, yeah, I uh, was offered a job at Nature, which, you know, is um, continues to be the one of the world's premier scientific journals. So it was a fantastic opportunity. Uh, and it, it was, but it was an editor's job. So what it really involved was selecting deciding and selecting which papers nature would publish so people submit scientists submit papers to nature and the editors have a look at them figure out whether in principle the paper looks interesting enough and whether it seems suitable for the journal and then we send it out to referees specialist referees who tell us you know if there's any flaws in the work and how important it is and then we make a decision about it so that's what the job consisted of but being at somewhere like Nature meant that there were opportunities to start doing other stuff, to start writing. So writing for the magazine itself and also, you know, it meant that if I went to a newspaper and said, look, you know, are you interested in me writing a piece about this this work? I, they were more likely to listen, uh, you know, if I was already working as an editor at Nature than if I was, you know, no one uh, they'd ever heard of. Um, so that helped and that meant that there were opportunities to do that. So it, I, I gradually came to realise that actually, you know, writing about science was what I wanted to, to do. Um, so it was fantastic working in Nature. It was, a, it was a huge learning experience because this was, I mean, if anyone knows anything about Nature, you know, it's now a publishing empire with, with 
so uh, lots and lots of journals in different disciplines. When I joined in 1988, it was just Nature, the, the magazine, that was it. And it was, so it was a small operation uh, with a small staff. And it meant that as an ed- editor for physical sciences, I could be covering anything. That if, if one of my colleagues who normally did astronomy and astrophysics was away on holiday, then maybe I'd have to do their papers for a week or earth sciences or something. So it meant I had to learn about all these areas of, of science that I'd never trained in, which was challenging, but really exciting. Um, so it was a great place to... To, to learn and to learn how to write. I mean, I sort of did that on the job. I'd had no journalistic training, but I had to learn how to edit pieces, you know, how to sub-edit, how to do the sort of fine-grained details of going through word by word and figuring out what goes where and where the words were used correctly. So all of that stuff I, I learned there, and it was a great training ground and continues to be for people who want to communicate science more generally. I wanted to understand a little bit about the path your career's taken you because you've written a number of books you've written for so many publications you've recorded lots of podcasts and shows how have you kind of moved about between different organizations between different work what kind of what's been the kind of path if you can kind of run us through it a bit it's been it feels to me like very much a random walk I never had any you know plan for what I was going to do uh, and as I say I, I really only fell into this lucky position at nature towards the end of my PhD you know I just uh, just months before I was going to finish as I recall I just sort of you know gave that a go and while I was there I uh, the more I wrote the more I realized I wanted to write and I wrote my first book while working full-time at Nature in 1994 well I wrote it in 1993 I guess came out in 94 and um, that was it was great but it was also hellish because working in nature was more than a full-time job already and you know writing a book as well it meant I was getting up at five in the morning and doing a little bit before I went into work and and so on and so I figured I wanted to do more of that but I couldn't do it as a full-time nature editor so I went part-time and uh, and the rest of the time worked on uh, the second book and gradually I took on more and more writing and realised actually this is probably what I want to do. And I, I can never remember exactly when I went freelance. I cut down to working in nature one day a week. Uh, and it was sometime I think in the early 2000s that I decided, okay, you know, now it's probably time to go freelance. So, so that's, that's what I did. Um, and that involved, I mean, and what it involves now still is a mixture of working on books, so these long-term projects that require a lot of research and, and, and working on, you know, much shorter-term journalistic writing. And the two feed each other. So when I'm researching a book, I might well come across stuff that will become, a, you know, an article for somewhere. And when I'm looking out for what's going on in science to write for, you know, New Scientist or uh, Scientific American or wherever, that sometimes, you know, bring, throws up ideas that might eventually become books. So it's, you know, it's very good to have the, the two going on together. Um, I also think it's just very good discipline in a way to have, you know, with a book, your your deadline is maybe, you know, a year or a year and a half away. Um, sometimes writing for someone like The Guardian, they call me up and say, you know, can you write about this thing that's just happened in science and can you do it by lunchtime? And I think that's really great because that really teaches you as a writer to 
to to not be precious about it you know i think that's the thing that i always feel about writing you've just got to get on and do it and sometimes certainly for book writing sometimes i i will be thinking you know this stuff i'm, I'm writing is terrible and it all i think all writers feel that and it's probably a bit worrying if you don't but i know that you, you just have to get on and do it and you can go back later and you know and, and edit it but it's the discipline of of getting words figuratively but it used to be literally on paper that um that's the important business um so yeah that's that that's really what you know what the what my my work consists of now is balancing the two and finding you know keeping both of them afloat as it were and so i write from you know ranging from uh newspapers as i say where you're writing for a very general audience to slightly more specialist stuff in new scientist and scientific american to pretty specialist stuff in fairly technical journals like Nature Materials, where I've had a column for 20 years, actually, for uh, this year, uh, to occasionally, I mean, this has been the, the really nice thing that I found, that I've been able to keep enough contact with the scientific community to occasionally write scientific papers with colleagues or by myself for the specialist scientific literature. So it spans that whole range. I'm intrigued how, because you've obviously been very busy doing lots of different things, how you've you know managed your time and scheduled, and I'm sure there's not been a typical week, but just any insight at all into how you've managed to you know balance all these different things. You said about waking up at 5am when you were writing books. and Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> I don't have to do that anymore, fortunately. Um, again, it is just this thing of, of getting on and doing it. Um, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I seem to be able, fortunately, to to write quickly. Uh, and I'm not quite sure why that is or how that is. But it, it feels to me like it's just about, you know, becoming very focused. I mean, when I was working at Nature, and it was in a big open plan office. Everything was happening at the same time. And it, I had to be very, very able to just focus in on what I was doing and not be distracted by everything that was going on around, even though it's great to have all these things going on around. Um, so, uh, you know, that ability, I guess, served me well there, but I, uh, it's, it's certainly what I have to do, you know, now as a freelance writer is just to be able to really knuckle down to the task. Um, but it is really just, a, you know, this matter of um, it's a balance, it's a juggling act. Um, that, you know, I know that there's a piece that, you know, maybe I've, the deadline is in a couple of days time, so I've probably got to get going and get cracking on that, you know, but I've got to make sure I find enough time to keep the book ticking over, whatever book it is I'm, I'm working on, and be looking out for, you know, new things to, to, to write about. Um, and I suppose it's, you know, that routine is just what I've, I've got used to doing. I mean, one thing it does involve at the start of every week is that I look through some of the, the major scientific journals, you know, what they've published or what they're about to publish, um, just to keep abreast as much as I can of what's happening in different areas of science. But I think a lot of it is, is just about having the curiosity to do it. And that's what keeps me doing this, I guess. There are some people who decide I'm going to specialise in this area. I'm going to specialise in space science, for example, or you know I'm going to specialise in in some animal behaviour or something. And you know I understand that motivation, but it's not the one that I have. I I've always felt that 
it's a huge privilege to be able to do what I do and to have the choices that I do. And I really want to make use of that as, as best I can by learning all the time. Every new project, every new book project um, that I take on, I really want it to be uh, you know, something where I'm going to learn something new. Just a few questions about your career in general. What would you say you've enjoyed most about your career? It's definitely the, the, the freedom I have to explore wherever my interest takes me. And I'm constantly uh, feeling grateful for, for having the opportunity to do that. And, you know, just grateful that I've been able to make some kind of living doing that. Um, because it, it means that what I do can be a constant learning process for me and that it can uh, you know it's it's full of surprises I don't know where it's going to take me I mean you know another book I wrote was a, a history of China but a history of China looked at through China's cultural relationship with water with how to manage its water resources with the way that water imagery you know infuses the the language the philosophy and i think you could understand a lot about the political history past and present of china through that lens and that's an example of the, you know the kind of thing that uh, it was just wonderful to be able to uh, you know think right now i've got to find out something about chinese philosophy and i i spend before the pandemic a lot of time in china and have a rudimentary grasp of the language enough to get around and get a taxi and get a meal but you know not more but enough to give me enough confidence that you know maybe that I can tackle uh, something like this um, and it's those sorts of opportunities that I just feel constantly grateful for to be able to say you know actually this is something that intrigues me so I can now spend you know a year and a half two years digging into that and and scratching that itch and finding out about it that's great what about the most challenging aspect of your job what's what's most difficult it's i i, I guess it's always you know the fear that you have in writing about so it's not really a fear it's just a it's constantly there that you know there's so much potential to get things wrong you know to make mistakes and we're all going to do that that all science communicators are going to do that you know so it's no there's no point in in fooling ourselves that it's not going to happen um generally speaking or in fact you know almost across the board with very few exceptions scientists are incredibly generous about that uh, so they're incredibly generous in giving their advice to steer you away from that and to spot mistakes you know before they're published uh, ideally um but if that happens you know and something wrong comes out then they're you know almost always really sort of kind about that and they just sort of say oh, by the way you know you might just like to want you know correct this they don't get irate about it um so you know it, it's not the worst thing in the world when that happens but it does mean that you have the uh, you know the potential to kind of make a bit of a fool of yourself to get things you know pretty badly wrong that fortunately doesn't seem to happen too often um, and I suppose you know it's probably a good thing that it breeds humility that we have to constantly remember you know how likely 
uh, we science communicators are to do that. Um, but it means that, and I've just been, you know, literally this morning writing a piece about quantum mechanics that is really hard to get my head around. Um, so, you know, that that is uh, that's a hard part of the job, but kind of enjoyably hard because it's I, I you know I like that challenge. I like the fact that that's you know that I have to work hard and and try to dig deep to to understand uh, what's going on. So yeah, I guess that's the, the 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 biggest challenge, but it's not necessarily a bad one. You've received quite a few awards for all of your efforts over the years. Is there any particular award that has meant the most to you? Uh, well, the one that probably made a, a big difference um, to my confidence, at least, uh, is in twenty o five. I won. The, there's a, a book for. Uh, there's a prize for science books um, in, in, in the UK um, that's awarded every year and it's awarded, it's generally been awarded via the Royal Society with a sponsor. Um, and uh, so it's, you know, the the big, it's kind of like the booker of, uh, of science writing, really. Um, so that's the one that everyone who writes science books, you know, sets their sights on. And so, I, yeah, I won it in 2005 to my amazement and I think to everyone else's amazement because the shortlist was really quite, you know, daunting, the people that were in there. Um, and it was for a book called Critical Mass, which I published the year before, which was uh, a book about how ideas from physics were being used and can be used to understand social phenomena. Um, and I tried to cast that this kind of, you know, modern social physics really within the within a, a historical context um and tracing it back to what philosophers uh have have talked about and particularly i started with thomas hobbes that you know his view of uh of society outlined in leviathan in the 17th century uh seemed to me to be a kind of a uh, in a very early attempt to do something like this, to use rationality and a kind of physics to understand how, how society works and how government work works. Um, so, yeah, it was fantastic to receive that. And it meant that critical mass you know, suddenly sold very well. Until then, it had been doing nothing. And suddenly it was a kind of bestseller for a short time. So that's always very nice. But I think more than that, it... At that relatively early stage, you know, I hadn't written so many books by then, and it, that that gave me the confidence to think maybe this is something I I can do. Uh, so so that yeah, that was particularly nice. Is there any advice you'd give to someone wishing to pursue a career similar to to yours? I mean, I guess um, I mean when I started doing this in the late nineteen eighties, when I started getting into science communication in in a general sense. It wasn't at all professionalized. Um, it was we all were making it up as we went along. There were no, there was no particular training that you could do other than doing it on the job. Whereas today there is, and I think it's a very good thing that there are journalists, you know, science journalism courses and science communication courses um, that, from what I've seen of them, are very good. And a lot of people coming in to, you know, uh, coming in new to the profession now have that training and are expected to have that training and so I'd certainly recommend doing that it would have you know it would have saved me from making all kinds of mistakes early on so yeah I think you know that uh, it's very good it's, it's important to be aware that that's a possibility now and that it's uh, one that I'd, I'd certainly recommend people take if, if they can.
final question is what plans do you have for the future with all of your work well i you know as i say i've got this the next book uh written and that we'll 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 see how that does and i have a couple of others that i'm working on in in, in various ways um so in a sense it's uh it, it, it's sort of going on you know doing what i'm doing but i i guess I, I never quite know which directions my sort of interests are going to take me, but one of them that's emerged from the pandemic is to really be thinking about how science and policymaking and politics interact. And I think that we've seen some quite problematic aspects of how that happens everywhere in the world. And certainly in, in the UK, I think there have been some real problems that the pandemic has highlighted that need to be thought about there. Not just problems in terms of the, the sort of, you know, mechanics of who speaks to whom, but in terms of the whole notion of what science advice to policy should be and what responsibilities scientists who are in that position have. And I guess that's something that actually connects to the book I wrote on. Um, I mean, it sounds kind of dramatic to put it this way, but the book I wrote on uh, German physics in the Nazi regime, um, because there was a you know there are many questions there to ask about how the physicists interacted with the the regime, and there was certainly plenty of collusion that went on there, and collusion that I think partly came about through the scientists kidding themselves that they were living you know in a this rarefied world that was aloof from politics and society and so that enabled them to go on working for a murderous genocidal regime um now we're not in that <laughs> uh, but i think that there are lessons to be learned from episodes like that that are extreme cases of the relationships that science does have and can have and that perhaps sometimes shouldn't have uh, with the rest of society and with the political context uh, you know in which it operates so that's an area that um, I'm you know very interested in pursuing really with a view to what we have learned about it from the pandemic. Philip thanks so much for speaking great to hear about your life. Pleasure thanks for asking me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you enjoyed the Human Podcast, please consider subscribing. I hope to see you soon.